Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It would have been late fall, early winter of 1996. I was a senior in high school and I had just gotten my license over the summer. I got my license about a year after I could have. I'm not really sure why that is. For someone who loves, who ended up loving being able to drive and then being able to move around and then being able to travel, it's always struck me that I got my license uh, later than I could have. But there was always a restaurant that I would go to. It was the first of many all-night spots that I found, and it's still a place that I dream about, really. It was a place called Applewood, and it was located at exit 218 on Route 90 in Ohio. And the place has since closed down, but uh, it was a place that I used to go to with my parents on Sundays. And when I got old enough, and um, when I could drive myself, uh, that is where I would go with a book and sit at the counter or sit at the table and just read and only order a Pepsi or only order a side of fries, that kind of thing. But on this night, um, it must have been, I'm not sure what exactly I was doing or who said the first word, but I was sitting uh, at the counter, the swiveling chairs at the counter, and there was a much older man, <clears throat> there was a much older man sitting farther down on the counter. And I forget who talked first, but I noticed very soon that he had the illustrated edition of Houston Smith's uh, World's Religions. And I thought that was incredible. And whatever it is we ended up talking about that night, I'm sure it was about the Houston Smith book but it may as well have been about other things. He's probably the first person that I heard about uh, Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyer's Power of Myth from. And what started there, a senior in high school, was a friendship that lasted for, I would say, for the next five, six, seven, maybe eight years, on and off. He looked much older than he really was. I thought uh, even, even with your sense of what age looks like when you're 16 or 17, I thought he looked like he was in his 60s, but I believe he was, uh, or in his 70s, and I believe he was only in his 50s at the time. As he came to tell me much later, uh, he arrived in uh, Geneva, Ohio, and at Applewood Restaurant, actually, um, smoking crack in the restaurant bathroom. And I won't give this man's name, but um, uh, but that is what that is where he started. And he went through quite a life to end up being a sort of mentor for me, for someone who has lived through many struggles and who came to see a great value in religion, and mythology and poetry. Uh, not an academic interest, not a merely pious interest in any of these things, but as I've been saying with my friend Jeff through email uh, these past few weeks, um, how it is that one lives with these things, how one lives with whatever religion you've chosen, how one lives with poetry, um, how one lives with art, really, how it sustains your life, literally sustains your life. Uh, back at this man's apartment, he had what I didn't know at the time, but I'm pretty sure that's this is what it was. W.H. Uh, Auden and somebody else, I believe, edited six or seven volumes of English poetry, I think for Viking, many years ago. And he had that uh, next to his armchair 
in his apartment, little uh, red uh, hardback books. And he was always uh, pulling those books out and quoting poetry to me. He was the first person who really showed me the beauty of rhyming poetry. For many years, I couldn't get into rhyming poetry at all. He was always reciting Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven to me. And actually, if I can find that right now, it's worth quoting the first few lines of it. It does have a great uh, marching rhythm to it, Hound of Heaven. Let me see. There we are. Uh, and this is how the poem begins. It's a very long poem. It was published in 1890. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him an under-running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasmid fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. And it goes on and on. He did it much better than I could. Um, he was someone who uh, came of age, you might say, just about the time that Thomas Merton's uh, monastery in, is it in, I can't remember where it is now, I used to know this immediately, in Gethsemane in Kentucky or Tennessee, uh, was becoming a haven for uh, people who maybe were reacting against the counterculture or who still wanted to be Catholic and be in the counterculture. He described being able to go to this uh, monastery where the Trappists were and you would stay on the, what you might say, the lay side of the monastery, but you could spend the weekend there or maybe even longer than that. And he described what it was like. This is for me when I uh, still sort of considered myself a Catholic. But uh, even when I didn't, I was still intensely interested in the life of someone like Thomas Merton. And my friend described to me what it was like in the late 60s, early 70s, staying at this place. And what it was like being in a place that was quiet and serene, except for when, I suppose, uh, they were singing The Office. But he also described what it was like leaving the place, of getting behind the wheel of a car, and being terrified at having to go above, you know, 25 miles an hour, having been in this, this retreat, this place where some people live their entire lives, um, it was terrifying just to get back into a car again and have to drive quickly. Um, my friend was someone who, as I said, he lived with art, he lived with poetry, he lived with history, really. Um, he was someone who, because of the, the troubles that he had in his life, he would describe to me having knocked down, drag out fights with God in the middle of the night, he would describe slamming the refrigerator door and yelling at God, and I believe uh, believing in some way that he was hearing a response back. Um, he was someone who dealt with drug addiction, as I sort of mentioned. Um, he was also the first gay person that I ever knew. It may sound quaint, but I grew up, while I did grow up in a Catholic household, I never heard anything about how gay people were bad or about, about how gay people were sinners or anything like this. So that when a movie called and the band played on, based on Randy Schultz's book about the early years of, of AIDS, when the movie version of that came out on HBO, that was really the first introduction I had to... Um, to a culture that I knew nothing about, and I never once remember my parents or anyone in my family, really, who had seen that movie saying anything bad about it. So that when I came to know my friend, I don't mean it's just because of the movie, but just as an example, um, it meant something to me then 
that I could sit down with my parents and watch this movie and uh, and have gay people just be in the movie and that was fine um, and have it be about them and their suffering and what was going on and and it was worth watching but uh, but I think that and just the experience of life in high school it was very obvious that there were people who were different from me in a million ways. And I remember very soon after I met my friend that he called me on the phone at my house one night and I could tell that he was drunk. And he, I think I could also tell that he was crying or that he had been crying, that he had been weeping, that he was terribly nervous to have me on the phone. And I was sitting in my parents' bedroom. This was uh, before they even had a cordless phone. And they were downstairs, and I was just holding this uh, phone that was attached to the wall. Um, they were sitting on my parents' nightstand, uh, sitting in the dark in their room, listening to this much older man um, expressing these emotions to me and being very nervous about what he was about to say. And at one point, he said that he had to put the phone down for a second. And that was one of the longest few minutes of my life because I thought for a split second, I thought that the next thing I was going to hear was a gunshot or, or something of the kind. I thought he was going to kill himself based on how he sounded over the phone. But when he got back on the phone, um, Somehow or other, we got, he got back to what he wanted to say to me. And keep in mind, I'm, uh, I'm 17 years old, and he is uh, in his 50s. And we're in a small, uh, rural-ish town in Ohio. And he felt uh, the need to tell me about a month or two after we had met um, that he was gay, and he was terrified to tell me this because he wasn't sure if, I don't know, I would still want to be his friend. And um, and I just told him, I don't care, that's fine with me. Um, doesn't doesn't make me any more or less uh, likely to talk to you. I mean, you're my friend, that's it. And uh, he was so relieved after that. And it got to the point where we could joke about it, that whenever it seemed that I thought that he might be hitting on me or something, uh, he would remind me that, um, I think the quote that he always said was, um, I want nothing to do with your scrawny, skinny, white body. As he said, uh, the last serious boyfriend that he'd had was um, a young man from Cleveland who he said uh, resembled Prince, which I was like, well, there you go. More power to you. And there were times when he would say he was taking off for the weekend and going to the bathhouses in Cleveland. And um, I felt very lucky to have this person in my life who, who lived in a way that was entirely different from me and who felt completely at ease um, telling me these things. And at one point, uh, before I moved away from Ohio, I remember uh, driving with him to one of the great cemeteries in Cleveland. Let me see if I can find the name of it because it is worth uh, it is worth uh, making a trek to for anyone out there. Um, largest. It's a place where there are presidents and um, it may just be the Lakeview Cemetery. I'm not sure. Yes, uh, Lakeview Cemetery, eternal home to Cleveland's most famous residents. It is the home to Cleveland's most famous residents, but it is also the home, the final resting place of that uh, ex-boyfriend who looked so much like Prince. And it meant a lot to me that I could take him there, uh, someone who, uh, by the time I knew him, uh, didn't really drive or didn't have a car that was reliable. When I first met him that night, and he had Houston Smith's uh, World Religions on him, he also always had back issues in the most recent uh, issue of things like New York Magazine, or just the New York Times, the crossword. He was always reading the obituaries. 
And he was the first person to introduce me to the poetry of Seamus Heaney, that famous poem that I've read many times on this podcast about um, uh, the scene that comes from the Irish annals where the monks uh, see the ship in air and the anchor falls from it and attaches itself to the altar railing and all of that. Um, when I came to read Seamus Heaney seriously, uh, many years after that, I, I, I could still, and even now when I read that poem, what I see is the countertop at Applewood Restaurant and the sort of dark red tiles that were across from us um, that faced uh, the little window looking into the kitchen where the cooks were and where the coffee and soft drinks were that the waitresses were always passing by. Um, that's, the, that's the thing that I remember when I read that Seamus Heaney poem, even now, a winter evening in 1996, early 97, uh, discovering um, this poet who I really wouldn't really get into for the next few years. Um, and I would end up spending a lot of time in his apartment because that's where so much, so many of his things were, his books of poetry. He would, uh, <laughs> he also had a, I believe, on top of the W.H. Auden, six or seven volumes of English poetry. I think he also had an equivalent little set of books of, uh, of Thomas Aquinas, which he always said he wanted to read, but never quite could. And I remember at one point, uh, my girlfriend and I, at the time, we made him a birthday card with uh, the actor Tay Diggs shirtless on the cover of the birthday card. And I remember thinking it was hilarious, but uh, entirely um, appropriate that when he gave him that card, where did he put it? But uh, on the little bookshelf next to his recliner, uh, in between the uh, books of Thomas Aquinas. That's just the kind of thing that he did. Uh, he, he loved the plays of Tennessee Williams. He would always, he was really the first person who I heard anecdotes about other writers from, that I heard stories about writers from. I think I've mentioned that the first person that I really knew about, the first author I really knew about, was Stephen King. But outside of that, um, I never really knew stories about writers until I met this guy. And he would always tell me the story of uh, Tennessee Williams sitting in the back of performances of Streetcar Named Desire and just laughing at the parts that he thought were extremely funny, but that uh, the, everybody else in the audience thought were horrible and tragic. The line in there, um, I've always depended upon the kindness of strangers and all of that. Uh, he would tell me stories about Tennessee Williams. Um, and what a revelation to hear these, that, uh, I mean, it's something that I, that I knew from junior and senior year English class in high school. And I would have, uh, known stories about T.S. Eliot by then, just by the little potted biographies that they would have in your textbooks. But but again, this, is, this isn't a teacher, this isn't a classroom. This is someone who lives in the same town as me, who lives with these authors, who lives with these plays, with this poetry, with this theology, with all of these things. And um, he had a very grim sense of humor and a very absurdist sense of humor. He had a reproduction of just the head of the Virgin Mary from Michelangelo's uh, Pieta, the, the one he did when he was very young. And um, I believe he had to move around an awful lot so that a lot of his things were always in boxes. And my friend and I at the time, who we were into surrealism and data at the time, because of course, we're 18, 19, 20 years old. What the hell else are you going to be into? And we thought it was uh, very appropriate that he, at, at the back of uh, my friend's apartment in his closet, he had a little box about the size of the box that Gwyneth Paltrow's head is in, in the movie Seven. And it was taped shut, but the label on the outside of it just said uh, Virgin's Head. 
And that was uh, a remarkable thing to see. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other thing that he would always tell me at some point was that he, I believe his father was in the military and, and that he moved around a lot. And that at some point he had been uh, abused, I believe, by family friends. And it was something that he was never able to tell his family about. And that at some point he realized it, was, it would have been during uh, the 60s, um, late 60s, early 70s, when he realized that, that, that he was gay and that he sort of just ran off. And one of the places he went to was the city of Macon, Georgia. And that is where, uh, of all places in the South, is where he found, uh, I believe, his, the first little open community that he could uh, become involved with and, and live the way he wanted to live and love the way he wanted to love. And, and then there was always a gap. I never really quite understood what happened between the time he was in the South the time that he ended up in Geneva, Ohio, uh, doing drugs in the bathroom. Um, there were a lot of stints that he would do at the VA hospital. There was um, stories, I believe, about he and his mother that he would tell me about how they would, uh, or just about him, I believe, about, uh, about how he was institutionalized for just long enough that the credit card companies that had been hounding him and his family over debts. Um, as the way he told it, there were rules about how uh, if you're in, if you're committed for a certain amount of time, those debts are sort of forgiven and they aren't allowed to follow you around and nag you about them afterwards. And at some point he was able to clean himself up and he became the sort of ragged person that I knew. Uh, 50 years old and kind of kind of husky stooped overweight always with a belly uh full head of gray hair or uh scraggly white beard and bald and with some patchy gray hair uh, uh fingernails gnarled from smoking cigarettes and all the rest um an immensely kind man immensely kind human being who who was who was very self-conscious about hanging around with uh, young kids, young men because he knew the kind of uh, suggestion that that gave um, he was someone who took religion very seriously as I've said just as much as poetry religion or just as much as poetry and mythology and the other great story of his life was of his mother he once told me that if anyone ever had an Oedipus complex it was him and by the time I met him his mother was uh, was in an old folks home uh, in Geneva and I'm not sure, maybe that's the reason he moved there, because his mother had been placed there for some reason. I never uh, got that side of the story of who got to Geneva first, he, him or his mother. But it got to the point where I would go with him to visit his mother at this home. And by then his mother was um, pretty far gone. She wasn't very talkative, and uh, but he he loved his mother and would visit her and would bring her food or treats or just, you know, like a stuffed animal, that kind of thing, small gifts. And I remember going uh, with my girlfriend to visit my friend's mother and we would go to the dining area and sit across from her. And usually that was the best way, the easiest way to get a reaction out of her was for her to see my girlfriend and I, who were not yet 20, or maybe we were 20 by then, and she would see these young people who were in love, and she would just sort of, her eyes would sort of light up, and she would 
smile at us, even smirk or just grin at us to see us there. And I remember going into that little cafeteria with all of these old people, and there were, and, and many of them, most of them were women. And what it was like for these women with dementia and Alzheimer's, who many of whom had been uh, abandoned by their families or who had just been placed there by their families because they couldn't take care of them. And, uh, but they clearly missed having their family around and, or they just missed being, in, in one woman's case, they missed being a mother, missed being, having someone to care for and love. And I remember this older woman who would carry around, I believe, a, a spatula or a serving spoon, like a wooden or a plastic serving spoon. And the, I think the handle had been elongated for some reason. And she would rock this thing and, and coo to it and sing to it. And it was, it was actually quite beautiful to see, even though it was terribly sad. And there was another older man there who, would, uh, who had all of his wits about him still, who still lived in town, but his wife was at the home because she needed to have uh, very specific care. And that is something that I have tried to put into stories many times. And I, I don't think I've ever quite succeeded in doing it because I saw it one day. I saw this this man come through the door. He would have actually been in his 70s. And he would approach his wife, who didn't really know who he was anymore. And he would approach his wife with a, uh, a newspaper that had been laminated or just put in one of those plastic protective uh, sheets. And it was a picture of he and his wife in the newspaper for a uh, a garden that they had planted together or tended together, like a VFW thing, and they had gotten in the paper about it. And I can still see this old man showing this this newspaper clipping to his wife, this woman he'd been married to, I don't even know how long. And just trying to just point to her, pointing it, pointing at it to her, saying, "Remember when we did that?" And she never did. She never remembered. She didn't remember anymore doing that with him. And it broke this man's heart to see this with his wife. And it broke his heart even more when when. When, uh, when his wife would look up at him and uh, would tell him, not remembering who he was anymore, that, that she had a boyfriend at the home, you know, some other old man in a wheelchair that she would sit and talk to. And, uh, and this husband just had to just take it. And I remember seeing him leave the home one day and just just walk out into the rain and just stand there in the parking lot. And I always wondered what happened to that old man, how, how much longer he was able to last. Um, but my friend's mother was there, as I said, and and I would go with him to visit her. And I remember when she died, finally, and uh, my friend told me that he was with her all night, and he climbed into bed with her. He knew that she was dying, and whatever it was that, that happened in their lives, I can't even imagine uh, what he had been through, what he had been through with his mother, what he had been through with his father. I know that he had uh, had some horrible falling out with his father, and he always told me, and I've never forgotten this, and I've told it to people who have falling out, who have fallen out with their own parents. I always tell them I had this friend of mine who fell out with his father, and who regretted it for the rest of his life that he never made up with his father, 
before his father died. But, uh, but whatever my friend was able to do with his mother, he was able to put it all on her. And he described to me how he climbed into his mother's bed and held her while she died. And how he seemed, he said how he seemed to, to inhale her last breath as she breathed it into his face and, and what that was like. And he told me this story uh, one night at his apartment while he was sitting in that recliner and I was sitting on the edge of the recliner and <laughs> And and there I am, you know, uh, putting my arm around this this old man, this this man who is old beyond his years in so many ways, and I'm just, as he said, this scrawny, skinny white kid. Um, and I got my arms around this tall, sort of pot-bellied man that I, I can't even put my arms around. And, uh, and he's just sobbing there over his mother. And, uh, and I'm the one who's there for him, of all people. Um, and I always tried to be as good of a friend to him as I possibly could. But uh, as time went on and as I got older, the, the impulse that my friend always talked about, he said he wished... He never read on the road because it makes you uh, want to go on the road, um, and that sometimes that impulse isn't the right one. But I had to get away from where I grew up and where I went to high school, and I lost touch with him. And it's kind of a cop out now to say I regret that it happened or I could have stayed in touch with him or. I could have done this or I could have done that. Um, you just grow away from people sometimes, don't you? That's just sort of what happens. And I think the the guilt was sort of compounded because I knew that he probably didn't have that many other people in his life by the time I did move away. And I knew that the people he did run across, the people who were his own age or a little older, were the small-town eccentrics who could be cruel or just petty or vindictive, that kind of thing. Or that there were people who knew that he was gay and didn't appreciate uh, having someone like that around. He vacillated constantly between going back and forth with the Catholic Church. And I remember feeling the worst for him that I ever did, even, uh, even more so than after his mother died. Uh, because I felt he had done what he needed to do when his mother died. Um, it was heart-wrenching, but that is, that's exactly what he wanted to do. He wanted to be there for his mother when she died. But I remember him entering uh, uh, with, I believe, a confirmation class that also included people who just wanted to come back into the church, and that one of the things he had to do or felt it was necessary to do, I can't remember which, he felt a duty to do it, that he had to confess uh, all the details of his, um, of his life to this priest in Ohio. And I knew this priest, he wasn't a bad guy, but, uh, but I mean, he's also not anybody you would point to as being particularly wise or compassionate. And, and I knew, knowing my friend, I knew that he, even though he had told me many things, that because the, the, because the topic of drugs or of being gay or of having been abused or, or any of these things, are very sensitive, especially in a small town. Um, I knew how private he was, and I felt terrible that he had to tell these things to a priest who wouldn't understand, 
and who, as I remember him telling me, just sort of gave him um, a kind of disgusted look. And the worst part about it was, was that, uh, as I knew, as I thought I knew what would happen, was that my friend wouldn't stick with being a Catholic anyway, so that he almost told all of these deepest secrets and opened himself up to this kind of judgment and shame almost almost for nothing. But as I was saying, I, I lost touch with my friend as I moved from uh, as I moved down to Georgia and then moved to Pittsburgh, then met my wife, moved to California, and then uh, out to Brooklyn, and now back in Pittsburgh. And I lost touch with him, as I lost touch with many people. And the last thing I remember hearing was that he had uh, called my house and uh, he had been told, he had asked for me, and he was told that he had the wrong number. Um, there are people in my family who did not appreciate my friendship with this much older man, and because uh, I wasn't living there anymore, they felt the need to tell him that. And I never really knew what happened to him until a few years ago when I just uh, searched for his name. Um, now, he had a nickname that I always knew him by, and uh, and I did know his full name, and it took some time to just search for it, because he was always in bad health. And I ended up finding the, uh, the day and the year when he had died, and his name was just listed there in... Um, in the sort of roll call of the local funeral home, uh, listed, I believe, under the the names of deaths who, you know, didn't have anybody there, basically. And it's always really dug at me that I did lose touch with him and that he was someone who taught me so much when I was young and needed to be exposed to people who weren't just like me. I needed to be exposed to people who didn't just love books or didn't just love religion or didn't just uh, love mythology, as I've said, but who actually uh, lived full lives and the lessons they gleaned from these things, the lessons they got from literature or art uh, or religion were real and they were earned. And one of the first things that he told me, actually, was something from Joseph Campbell and uh, from the Power of Myth thing that he did with Bill Moyers. And I must have been talking to him about um, what it would be like to uh, sort of fix up the world, the idea that you can uh, fix things and change things and everything will be all right. I mean, that's a good 17-year-old's way of thinking. You're either extremely cynical, nothing's ever going to work, or you have all the solutions. And he was the one who told me, um, that's not really the point, uh, to try and fix things. The point is to find meaning in them. The story that Joseph Campbell always told was, well, there's the chap who always comes to cut the grass every week. And suppose the grass just says one day, well, you know, what's the use and Campbell says, the use is the coming into being. That is the thing. Um, you learn from the past, from tradition. You plan as much as you possibly can for the future. But the basic thing is, right here, right now, coming into being. Um, always going. Uh, keeping that intensity, keeping that passion for whatever it is that is keeping you going right now. Uh, because if you don't have that, uh, the past doesn't matter, and the future sure as hell doesn't matter. Um, heaven is not uh, some other place. Heaven is not to be found out there or in the future. Um, my friend was the first person to uh, quote the Gospel of Thomas to me, where Jesus says, um, uh, oh, what is it? 
uh, uh, actually I think it's just Joseph Campbell saying it, uh, Eden was not, uh, Eden was not, uh, nor is it Eden will be, uh, Eden is, the kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and we do not see it. Eden is, whatever you're looking for is right here, right now. And um, I suppose that that is why I still dream of Applewood Restaurant. That is why I still uh, look at books by Joseph Campbell or look at that series he did with Bill Moyers and think of my friend. That is why I still uh, that is why I still break down when I tell the story of that old man going to see his wife who has forgotten him. Um, and I wanted to bring all of this up today because this past week was uh, Yom Kippur, and I had the great honor of delivering a delivering a sermon for the service that commemorated the dead and those we have lost in the last year and those we have just lost, period. There's a wonderful thing in our synagogue, I'm sure it's not uh, just our synagogue, where uh, there are the plaques all around on the walls that, uh, that list the names of the dead in the congregation. And every week you can see a little light next to different names, and those are the those are the names of the people who died at this time in previous years. Well, uh, during Yom Kippur, all of those little lights were on, all those little red lights next to all the names were on. And I was able to speak about memory and the importance of storytelling. Um, and something my friend probably taught me even then was that uh, it's not just a Jewish virtue, but it's something I think that is peculiar to Judaism, and that is that uh, we do not seek peace, I don't think. We do not seek balance or serenity. Um, but in place of those things, we have memory and we have stories. And I wanted to tell the story of this man here, my friend, who meant a great deal to me, um, who I can still see in the context of all the restaurants that we would go to, um, the all-night restaurants, or the, uh, or just going to his apartment to pick him up, to take him places, or just seeing him walking along the road some days in and out of downtown Geneva, Ohio, and and putting all of that in the context of right here, right now, that uh, even though to all outward appearances and to the small-minded judgments of small towns, uh, he was living a poor life or a wasted life or uh, a shameful life, something like that, um, he was actually sort of burning at every moment as best he could, and I don't know, I just felt the need to talk about him tonight, to to remember him, really, and to just share what he meant to me, to people out there who probably have their own version of him, um, the first adult that they ever met, who wasn't a teacher, who wasn't a parent who wasn't a relative, who, who took you seriously, who took your mind seriously, who took your heart seriously, who took your spirit seriously, who took your aspirations, your youthful 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old aspirations seriously, who listened to you and who spoke to you uh, as if you were an adult and someone who deserved respect and compassion and empathy. And um, I don't really know how to end this. I'm trying to think of one last story I can possibly tell about this man. Um, 
I can't really think of one. I think that I will leave it here for now, and I hope that uh, this has been of some use to all of you out there, as I seem to be gaining newer and more listeners. Maybe an episode like this will mean as much as the poetry and the history and everything else, because without these stories of just life, the poetry and the history, then the history and the religion uh, don't really matter much at all, now do they? And so with that, thank you all very much for listening. It's a few days later, and I did want to mention a few other things about my friend before I leave him. I doubt that I will have the chance to devote this much time to his memory in the future, and so I thought it best to just tack this on. One of the things that he did do in between his bouts of thinking that maybe he should be a Catholic is he was the first person really that I knew who really got into Eastern religion. And you could see that as being just what people did in the 60s and carried it forward uh, into the late 90s. But whatever he did with it still struck me as something quite powerful. I remember him just teaching me the uh, many of the little mantras, one of them being Om Mani Padme Hum, the jewel in the center of the lotus. I've never forgotten that. Uh, and things like that. He carried, my friend carried around with him, not just the W.H. Auden books or the Thomas Aquinas books, but also five by sevens of a uh, of a Hindu saint or sage uh, from the 20th century named uh, Ramana Maharshi. And uh, even now I can see that man's face in my mind and the sort of peaceful look on his face and in his eyes. And it's just being something very new to me when I first met my friend, that there were still people out there who were achieving these things, and that somehow, somehow or another, uh, they reached places like Geneva, Ohio, in the form of, at the very least, of five by seven photographs that you could see in a restaurant, where otherwise it was just uh, people out with their families, or people out by themselves, or people just talking about whatever it is that people in small towns talk about. Um, which is not to demean what people in small towns talk about. One of the great revelations that I had in that very small town and in one of those restaurants where I often met with my friend, one of the deepest things I ever experienced was uh, sitting in a restaurant. This is a time when I was sitting by myself and I was reading uh, Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man because that's what you do when you're 20. And um, and I noticed that above the TV, behind me, and up on a, up on a ledge was a TV uh, showing the Cleveland Indians uh, baseball game. They were probably playing the Yankees, and that might be another reason that I remember this so well. And it struck me that uh, everyone there, other than me, was watching the game. Um, I was reading, but... I wasn't castigating these people for watching the game instead of reading, and they weren't uh, getting on my back for, you know, what are you reading? Shouldn't you be watching the game? Uh, we were all there doing our thing, and that was fine. And it also uh, bolstered me, too, in this thought, realizing that if I had been at home with my parents, I would have been watching the game, too. Um, so it's not really something better uh, or pointing out something worse. It's just the remarkable thing of coming upon a picture of someone like Ramana Maharshi or being raised with the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and uh, the Catholic rituals and suddenly just coming across things like Om Mani Padme Hum, 
the jewel in the center of the lotus. And one of the things that my, my friend loved more than anything was the novelist Herman Hesse. And I think it's a great, a great clue to him that I've never really thought of before. Um, my friends and I, uh, who are my age or in our early 20s, the book of Hesse's that we loved was Steppenwolf, which is about uh, an older man, uh, I believe in his 30s or 40s, finding some sort of peace with life. You might even call it, uh, might even call it a kind of enlightenment. And uh, just to give you a sense, this is how Steppenwolf begins. Um, it's, it purports to be the journal of a man. And uh, after an introduction, this is how the, uh, the book begins. The purported journal begins. The day had gone by just as days go by. I had killed it in accordance with my primitive and retiring way of life. I had worked for an hour or two and perused the pages of old books. Um, I had done my breathing exercises, but found it inconvenient today to omit the thought exercises. And it says, um, No, it had not even been a day brightened with happiness and joy. Rather, it had been just one of those days which for a long while now had fallen to my lot. The moderately pleasant, the wholly bearable and tolerable, lukewarm days of a discontented middle-aged man. Days without special pains, without special cares, without particular worry, without despair. Days when I calmly wonder, objective and fearless, whether it isn't time to follow the example of Adelbert Stifter and have an accident while shaving. That was the book that my friends and I wanted to read. We were young, we wanted to read about an older, middle-aged man having these crises. Uh, my friend, who was past middle age, who was in his 50s, looked like he was in his 70s, said, I don't need to read that book because I have lived that book. And he's also the person who, when I told him that I had a print or a poster of um, Edvard Munch's The Scream in my room, he said, if you really knew what that painting was about, you would not want that in your room. Um, but the book that my friend did go for by Hesse is a book called Demian, and that is a book about uh, young men, uh, the friendship between two young men who achieve a sort of enlightenment together. And I don't recall that being a book that my friends and I and our youth were as attached to. There seems to have been that disconnect. The young wanted to read about the old. The old wanted to read about the young. But um, one of the things that my friend would always do is he would copy out his favorite passages from books into his own notebooks, into these uh, old calendar books that he had lying around, and he would just fill them up. And one of the things that, uh, one of his favorite passages, I probably heard him read it to me the first night I met him, and that I'd never forgotten, is from the very last page of Hesse's Demian. I should say that uh, Hesse, in the 19, between 1910 and 1920, he underwent psychoanalysis by one of uh, Jung's disciples, and I think in the 1920s, under Jung himself. And Demian was published just after the First World War, I believe in 1919 or 1920. And it is very Jungian. People are, very, people are highly symbolic and there are a lot of uh, visionary things going on. And uh, one of the things that happens is that the two young men, Demian and the main character, whose name is Emile Sinclair, they go off to war. And this last passage that I will read from uh, describes a sort of uh, experience that happens um, in the trenches. And this, I think, is where I would rather leave my friend, not in the limbo of the other night of wishing I had something more to say about him, but here with one of uh, his favorite pieces of writing. It says, it says this, one night in early spring, 
I stood guard in front of a farm that we had occupied. A listless wind was blowing fitfully. Across the Flemish sky, cloud armies rode on high, somewhere behind them the suggestion of a moon. I had been uneasy the entire day. Something was worrying me deeply. And now, on my dark guard post, I fervently recall the images of my life and thought of Frau Eva and of Demian. Frau Eva was Demian's mother. But being a Jungian novel, that is not uh, all that she is, of course. Um, I stood braced against a poplar tree, staring into the drifting clouds, whose mysteriously writhing patches of light soon metamorphosed into a huge series of swirling images. From the strange weakness of my pulse, the insensitiveness of my skin to wind and rain, and my intense state of consciousness, I could sense that a master was near me. A huge city could be seen in the clouds, out of which millions of people streamed in a host over vast landscapes. Into their midst stepped a mightily godlike figure, a mighty godlike figure, as huge as a mountain range, with sparkling stars in her hair, bearing the features of Frau Eva. I told you, she is not just Demian's mother. Uh, <clears throat> the ranks of the people were swallowed up into her, as into a giant cave and vanished from sight. The goddess cowered on the ground, the mark luminous on her forehead. A dream seemed to hold sway over her. She closed her eyes, and her countenance became twisted with pain. Suddenly she cried out, and from her forehead sprang stars, many thousands of shining stars that leapt in marvelous arches in semicircles across the black sky. One of these stars shot straight toward me with a clear ringing sound, and it seemed to seek me out. Then it burst asunder with a roar into a thousand sparks, tore me aloft and smashed me back to the ground again. The world shattered above me with a thunderous roar. They found me near the poplar tree, covered with earth and with many wounds. I lay in a cellar, guns roared above me. I lay in a wagon and jolted across the empty fields. Mostly I was asleep or unconscious, but the more deeply I slept, the more strongly I felt that something was drawing me on, that I was following a force that had mastery over me. I lay in a stable on straw. It was dark and someone had stepped on my hand, but Something inside me wanted to keep going, and I was drawn on more forcefully than ever. Again I lay in a wagon and later on a stretcher or a ladder. More strongly than ever I felt myself being summoned somewhere, felt nothing but this urge that I must finally get there. Then I reached my goal. It was night and I was fully conscious. I had just felt the urge pulling mightily within me. Now I was in a long hall, bedded down on the floor. I felt I had reached the destination which had summoned me. I turned my head. Close to my mattress lay another. Someone on it bent forward and looked at me. He had the sign on his forehead. It was Max Demian. I was unable to speak, and he could not, or did not want to either. He just looked at me. The light from a bulb strung on the wall above him played down on his face, and he smiled. He gazed into my eyes for what seemed an endless time. Slowly he brought his face closer to mine, and we almost touched. Sinclair, he said in a whisper. I told him with a glance that I heard. He smiled again, almost as with pity. Little fellow, he said, smiling. And remember, this is a, a novel about two young men who come to friendship in school, and it's one of those books where the one friend brings the other one along to experience. Uh, little fellow, Demian said, smiling. 
and his lips lay very close to mine. And quietly he continued to speak. And he asked, Can you remember Franz Cromer? And Franz Cromer was a, a bully of the, of the narrator, of the main character, from earlier in the book. I blinked at him and smiled too. Little Sinclair, listen, it will have to go away. Perhaps you'll need me again sometime, against Cromer or something. If you call me then, I won't come crudely on horseback or by train. You'll have to listen within yourself. Then you will notice that I am within you. Do you understand? And something else. Frau Eva said that if ever you were in a bad way, I was to give you a kiss from her that she sends me. Close your eyes, Sinclair. I closed my eyes in obedience. I felt, a light I felt a light kiss on my lips, where there was always little fresh blood, which never would go away. And then I fell asleep. Next morning, someone woke me. I had to have my wounds dressed. When I was finally wide awake, I turned quickly to the mattress next to mine. Now, on it lay a stranger I had never seen before. Dressing the wound hurt. Everything that has happened to me since has hurt. But sometimes, when I find the key and climb deep into myself, where the images of fate lie a slumber in the dark mirror, I need only bend over that dark mirror to behold my own image, now completely resembling him, my brother, my master. And I think that if my friend could have imagined a world of podcasts, could have imagined me one day telling this story to whoever it is listening out there, he would have preferred that I end it with that, that, uh, that I sort of commemorate my friendship with him, with this book that is about friendship, but also about parting. As I said, uh, he only came into my life because he had a life on the road, a life of crisis, a life that had him going many places and rarely settling down. And I only met him at that, just before that time in my life when it was my turn, not necessarily to jump into many crises. I haven't had many of those. But it was uh, just before the time when it was my turn to move and wander around and uh, leave him take my leave-taking of him. And in that sense that uh, friends are never really friends in person for that long. The rabbi at my synagogue just left, the rabbi who brought me in and converted me, and uh, who I hold great store by. Um, when I got the email saying that he was leaving, um, at first my my first response was to be heartbroken, but my second response to, was to be, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, uh, he put down a foundation, and it's now the rest of, uh, it's at least personally for me, it's my turn to build on that foundation. And um, even though I lost touch with my friend, and even though I could have stayed in touch with him more if I had had my wits about me. As Bob Dylan says somewhere, uh, it's very hard to be in love and wise uh, and considerate at the same time. Um, I think that uh, the way we fell out of touch, the way we lost touch, sort of matches the kinds of things we're interested in. And um, it also matches the way in which the things we are interested in do not have anything to do with ultimate goodbyes, but of things that linger on and live on. And I almost mentioned in, uh, in my thoughts earlier about my friend uh, something perhaps self-pitying or even arrogant to say something like, well, I've always attracted these weirdos to myself, these loners, these solitary people, these uh, town eccentrics, these people who are much older than me or maybe much younger than me and whatever it is, uh, drawn to me like a magnet. But of course, 
Uh, but of course, that's bullshit. I am one of those people. That is why they are drawn to me. Um, I am one of those eccentrics. Um, I am not the life of the party. I am not the one who will be the first one to arrive or the last one to leave. If anything, I will sneak in to talk to someone for an hour in the corner and leave before anyone else has noticed I was even there. And uh, this is just a long way of saying to my friend that I learned a great deal from you. And I thank you very much for everything that I did learn from you. And to everyone out there listening, I wonder who your version of this friend was. And I wonder if you were doing an episode about them, what book or what song or what movie or what memory, what story would they, uh, would they have told you that you would have wanted to close on? But uh, let me just read that last paragraph of Demian again, and we'll call it a day. Dressing the wound hurt. Everything that has happened to me since has hurt. But sometimes when I find the key and climb deep into myself, where those images of fate lie aslumber in the dark mirror, I need only bend over that dark mirror to behold my own image, now completely resembling him, my brother, my master. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.